Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17 and verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him from Berea. Athens was a very important cultural centre in Paul's day. It was the focal point of Greek culture. Uh, By this time, it had become politically weak, uh, and it was under the sovereignty of Rome. Uh, But uh, it remained the intellectual home of the empire and of the Gentile world generally. So Paul visits this important cultural centre of Uh, the first century world. And as he looks around him, we are told his spirit was stirred in him. The word rendered stirred comes from the Greek word from which we also get the English word paroxysm. Paroxysm. So it is a word denoting very strong emotion. And this tells us that Paul was deeply agitated by what he saw in Athens, by the abounding influence of false religion. Temples and idols were everywhere. And so he's grieved. And we read in verse 17, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. And so we see how Paul is anxious to disseminate the truth of Christ Uh, We are told that he speaks to the Jews, because the gospel is to the Jew first. And he also speaks with the devout persons. These are Gentiles uh, who were worshipping at the synagogue. Um, And so when we are told here that he disputed, it, it means... He reasoned, he discoursed, he argued a case. He he put forward the case for Christian truth. Uh, It's the same verb as was used uh, in verse 2 of this chapter 17. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Um, Of course, this reasoning um, would 
have naturally engendered some dispute because he was speaking to those uh, who were worshipping uh, false gods in, in many instances. Uh, but um, he has this desire to disseminate the truth. Uh, and he reasons, he disputes in the synagogue, uh, speaking to his own countrymen, the Jews. So he goes to the synagogue to argue from the Old Testament that the promised Christ has indeed come. And, uh, of course, the Jews, having been prepared by the Old Testament revelation over many centuries, um, were so much better prepared to receive the truth of the gospel. And that's why whenever Paul travelled around, he always went to the synagogue first, if, if there were one in, in that particular town or city. Uh, but he must reach the great mass of the Gentiles as well. Um, and so notice that he goes to the market daily. Uh, the market means the public square, the place where people tended to gather. So we're not just thinking of a place of commerce, but, but he went to where the people were. Now, um, the Greek word translated them that met with him uh, emphasises the random nature of the meetings. It, it means those who happened to be there in God's providence. And, and so these weren't prearranged meetings with specific people. Uh, but he went into a place of public discourse and gathering and he proclaimed Christ's truth. So here we have apostolic precedent for going into the high street today to make arguments to and to reason with those who happen to be passing by. We, here is the biblical precedent. We must go and speak about Christ and his great salvation. We, we cannot expect non-believers to come to us. Why should they? They have uh, hearts which are orientated against the gospel. So there's absolutely no reason why a non-Christian should walk, walk into um, a church. And so, really, the churches should not design their services to make them attractive to non-believers. Uh, because it, if churches do that, one can be pretty certain that uh, it would not be a service which was honouring to God anyway. Amen. So we have to go to where the people gather. Uh, and um, obviously, we always welcome non-believers uh, into our services. If, if God is working on someone's heart and then they feel moved to come of course we welcome any and every non-believer um, but generally speaking it, it, 
The Lord's Day, of course, is for the Lord's people. Uh, but we've got six other days of the week to go and minister to the world. And that's what we must be doing. Uh, and then verse 18, we read, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Remember, Paul was preaching in a totally pagan environment, which knew nothing of the Christian revelation. Uh, and notice what Paul is called. Uh, he's, he's called a babbler, which was a term of contempt. Referring to someone who repeats the sayings of others. Uh, in every age, the preachers of the gospel are rarely admired, uh, but they are frequently dismissed and, and they frequently have all kinds of names and titles given to them. The, the, the original term Methodist uh, was uh, a term of uh, displeasure. If you called someone in the 18th century a Methodist, it, you, you meant they are a dangerous fanatic. That's, that's what the word meant. A dangerous fanatic. And uh, preachers uh, in that period were also called uh, ranters. Uh, they will use all kinds of terms to discredit us. They, they will use the term fundamentalist. They will use the term extremist. Uh, they will also use the term in the 21st century, uh, hate preacher. You see, they're always inventing terms to discredit the gospel. Now, some were saying he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. And by that, gods who are foreign to the Athenians. You see, Paul was delivering a message which the Athenians knew nothing about. I mean, and they thought they knew everything about religion and philosophy. So what is the subject of Paul's preaching? <clears throat> he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. He preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And so let us note that Paul is amongst religious people, he's amongst philosophers, he, he's amongst highly educated people. But what does he talk about? He talks plainly about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And, and, of course, uh, when we are told that he speaks of the resurrection, uh, that, of course, implies that he also emphasised the Lord's death for sinners because we can only appreciate and understand the resurrection in the context of the Lord having died. Um, and so this was the substance of... Paul's message, Jesus Christ and him crucified and Jesus Christ and him 
resurrected. And, uh, and why was the Lord put to death? And why was he raised again? It was to accomplish the salvation of men. So he was not talking about uh, social justice. And many churches in our own day uh, have um, embraced a social justice message as opposed to preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Um, the Christian gospel uh, is not about creating social equality uh, and it is not about improving people's material conditions. Uh, Christians obviously do take great care of those in genuine need, but that's not the substance of the gospel. And uh, uh, we have a social justice message today in many churches, which, which is really just a replication of cultural Marxism. And um, in the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, uh, many churches uh, abandoned the true gospel uh, for what we call the social gospel, uh, for a message of social improvement. Uh, well, the only way to get social improvement actually is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Because if people are converted and born again, society begins to improve itself. So we see the focus of Paul's preachings. And uh, we have a special reference here to the Epicureans <clears throat> and the Stoics. And uh, it's rather interesting, looking at what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed, how, like modern sceptics, modern non-believers, they really were. Uh, the Epicureans uh, denied that God was the creator. Uh, they believed that matter had existed eternally. Uh, they also denied that God actively governs his world. Man's goal, they thought, was to pursue pleasure and personal fulfilment, uh, and, and they taught that there were no rewards or punishments to follow upon death, because at death both body and spirit ceased to exist. So that's what the Epicureans um, believed, and uh, they also held a that the world was made uh, by a fortuitous concourse of atoms. Well, that sounds exactly like the uh, Big Bang uh, idea, doesn't it, which has gripped the minds of so many well-educated people in our own day. Uh, interestingly, another major philosophical school, um, that of Aristotle, uh, also denied that God created the earth. <clears throat> arguing that the world has always existed. And, of course, modern science tells us uh, that the Earth has existed for a very, very long time. So modern secularism, in, in rejecting God's creation, is in fact not being progressive, but is actually reverting to ancient Greek pagan ideas. And so when our school children 
um, are taught about uh, dinosaurs walking over across the earth millions of years ago. Um, here we see a situation where uh, enlightened, progressive, 21st century man uh, is actually teaching not modern science, but the ideas of ancient Greek culture. Uh, and, and so we see uh, man is not progressing in, in, in the way that we are so often led to believe. Now, regarding the Stoics, uh, they were what are called pantheists. Uh, that is, they did not believe in a personal God, but they believed rather in the natural law which they thought held the world together. So, to the Stoic, universal reason was his God. They deified reason, uh, which incidentally is exactly what the revolutionaries did in France in 1789. They, they went into Notre Dame and they uh, erected a statue to the goddess Reason. Um, so again, we, we see these ancient beliefs uh, coming into more modern thought. The Stoics were fatalists, um, and, and we still, in our modern parlance, uh, use the term Stoicism, uh, meaning someone who is resigned to whatever happens. Uh, but they, they, they were fatalists. They, they denied that God was all-wise in contrast to man. Like the Epicureans, they denied that God created the world. Because they were pantheists, that meant that they believed that God himself was a part of the world. And so God is in every tree and plant. Christians, of course, do not believe that. God is separate from his creation. So <clears throat> hopefully we can begin to understand that there is nothing new under the sun regarding what people believe. Nothing new at all. Uh, and uh, the modern view about the Earth's origins actually is a very ancient idea. Uh, and uh, again, most people in our present day uh, reject the concept of life after death. Well, they're just doing what the ancient Epicureans did. You see, man loves to deny a final day of judgment on which God will bring his creation to an end. Uh, and, and man uh, has this tendency to deny the day of resurrection, the day of judgment, the, the, the day when uh, God says it's either everlasting life or it is everlasting condemnation. Uh, well, the unbeliever, of course, hates that concept. So, so they try and devise a different system. Um, and, and so an absolute plank and foundation of modern rejection of the Christian revelation is the denial of a six-day creation around 6,000 years ago. Um, 
Instead, uh, the scientists tell us, you know, the scientists who are always put on a pedestal in our modern culture, the scientists tell us that the earth has existed for billions of years, that man has evolved from the apes, and that death means the end of all existence. So, denial of the creation and denial of the resurrection, either to damnation or eternal life, are both part of the same syndrome of unbelief of fallen man. It was a problem in Paul's day, it's a problem in our day. Now, many modern progressive secularists would argue that the false religion of the Athenians was a legitimate expression of religious diversity. Uh, and it is a, as legitimate as the Christian viewpoint. Different cultures have different religions, uh, but they all have basically common goals, and that's uh, the improvement and well-being of man. And so that, this is how people argue today, uh, that uh, world religions tend to have a common goal and each must receive as much respect as the other. Well, is that the attitude which the Apostle Paul took when in Athens? What do we read? His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. He was grieved to the core of his being that the people of Athens were living in such grave spiritual error. And verse 19 we read, And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. So uh, Paul, uh, by uh, some of the leaders of society, was taken to a place called the Are Areopagus, or, or the Hill of Mars. Uh, now here there met a highly esteemed tribunal with jurisdiction over religion and morals. Uh, and it was at this place, at the Hill of Mars, or at the Areopagus, that it was accustomed to meet. Uh, this was not a formal meeting um, of that tribunal or that religious court. Uh, it was a relatively friendly opportunity for Paul to put forward the case for his teachings. And... Uh, he was told in verse 20, Thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. So the Athenians are intrigued by Paul's message of a supreme God, the one supreme God, manifesting himself in the flesh, coming down to earth as a man, and then dying for sinners and rising again from the dead. They are intrigued. 
Thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. Uh, the word strange in this particular context does not mean foreign, uh, as in verse 18, uh, but rather startling, astonishing. Uh, Paul's preaching was so different from what the other religions taught. Now again, we're told something about Athens in verse 21, for all the Athenians and strangers, foreigners which were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So the Athenians were renowned for their preoccupation with novelty and progressive ideas. And human nature, fallen human nature, has this tendency to seek out what it thinks is new and is therefore preferable to what went before. Uh, and many people today would argue, this is the 21st century, then they will say to Christians, how can you possibly believe that in the 21st century? As if we are on a, an automatic path of progress, and what we believe today must, by definition, be superior to what previous generations thought. And so today people have this desire to go after what they perceive to be new. Uh, and so these Athenians, they long for innovation in philosophical ideas, but they do not long to know the one true God, and that's the tragedy. They're not seeking God, they're not looking into their own hearts and being concerned about their sin. Now, Athens was a city very proud of its man-made wisdom and philosophical ideas. Um, and the modern world is so proud of its philosophies. And uh, we find uh, that people feel a great compulsion to, to make everybody else know that they conform to the new philosophical uh, mindset. And so we have the phenomenon of virtue signalling and political correctness. Well, in verse 22, we are told that Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. And so Paul now engages in a public proclamation. Now, Mars Hill uh, may mean here the men who belong to the tribunal, the religious court of the same name. Um, so he's amongst those persons. But it's a public proclamation. He was not on formal trial, uh, but he was in the midst of very influential people. Uh, and if we can try and picture it, one or two of you may have actually been to Athens. Uh, it would have been a dramatic sight. The city stretching out below, because Mars Hill is above the city. Uh, and... Uh, the Acropolis 
and the Parthenon uh, are in full view to the right of Paul. The Athenians were noted, even amongst the Greeks, as being particularly given over to religious activity. Um, And and the word uh, rendered superstitious here uh, simply means religious, but because it's false religion, that's why uh, we've given it this translation. Now, in the case of the Athenians, their religious interest was always directed to false, Satan-inspired beliefs. Um, And uh, John Wesley, uh, speaking on this verse, uh, paraphrased it like this, I perceive that ye are greatly addicted to the worship of invisible powers. In other words, how very religious you Athenians are, but your religiousness is totally misdirected. You see, the invisible powers that you worship, they come from Satan, they come from hell. Verse 23, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now the word devotions here means um, all the various details and facets of Greek religion, their temples, their altars, their idols. And there were so many temples and idols in Athens. So, so that's what he means when he says, I beheld your devotions. Uh, but Paul says that he's also seen one other altar in Athens. An altar to one who is described as the unknown God. Now this particular altar uh, was probably neglected. It was certainly not one of the mainstream altars. But it has been erected in the past at some point to a supreme being who was once supposed to have removed a plague from the city. And so in the past, some Athenians had erected this altar to a god they did not know or understand, but their own gods weren't able to remove the plague. But they erected an altar to this god whom they thought did remove the plague. It had not been put there in honour of Israel's God, but simply to some God whom they assumed they did not know. Because none of their own gods had been able to protect them uh, from the plague. Now, Paul here, He's using this concession by the Athenians that there are gods whom they do not know. At least least they admit admit that. And so Paul's trying to take advantage of that. Look, 
there is a God, you, you admit yourself, you do not know him, and that you might like to worship him. Well, in a certain sense, of course, they were right to erect that altar. Because there is one particular God, the creator God, the only true God who is indeed unknown to the Athenians, but to whom they actually should be submitting. And he is most certainly the one who would have taken away the plague from the city. And so, uh, here, notice how Paul is using um, this providential opening of seeing this altar to explain the gospel. And then he says in verse 24, God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he dwelleth not in temples made with hands. So, Paul explains that this supreme unknown God to you Athenians is in fact the creator of all things. So the fact that God is creator is a primary argument used by Paul. So that's very helpful guidance for us as we witness today. We must speak about God and that includes, of course, within the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, being the eternal creator. And so uh, an atheist um, came up yesterday um, and said, I'm not going to believe in your God because you have no evidence. Give me evidence before I will believe. And so thinking about how poor witnesses, how should we respond to that kind of approach? Um, and so uh, we said to this, this young man, we said, look up at the sky if you want evidence. Look at the sky. How did it get there? God put it there. Where do we get the seasons from? Recurring every year. Is it just some chance, some accident? No, it's God's creation. Failure to believe in the one supreme creator God has led the Athenians to be in grave error about so many things, including the matter of final judgment and life after death. You see, if God can bring men into being from nothing and give them life so that they live on this earth, he can also then judge them and raise them from the dead and give them everlasting life. You see, such a God is not confined to any man-made temple. He is present everywhere. And uh, Paul goes on and explains in verse 25 here, neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. So the true God, who is spirit, does not need the gifts of men to be brought to him in a temple, nor can he be represented by any man-made artefact. He's not worshipped with men's hands. 
There's, there's nothing we can give to God to make his situation any better. But Athens was literally full of temples containing idle depictions of false gods. And the presence of these gods actually appears to be confined to those temples. And yet people brought gifts to the temples, hoping to appease these gods. And then Paul says this in verse 26, He hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of all the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Well, Paul again uses creation as an evangelistic argument. Uh, and we also note from this verse 26 that God in his providence has placed men in nations with distinctive borders. We're actually told there that God has ordained borders, the bounds of their habitation. So many people in the churches today think that there's something unchristian about borders. And the cultural Marxists uh, do not like borders. Uh, and that's why hundreds of thousands, even millions of people are, are currently uh, crossing the Texan border uh, in the south of the United States. Uh, because the philosophy, the modern philosophy, is that nations should not have borders. But God has appointed borders. And he's determined where people live. He's determined what they do at any one point in history. He hath determined the times before appointed. And God has created us to dwell on all the face of the earth in nations. Why? Verse 27. That they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Here we are told why God has created mankind. Why has he done it? In order that men should seek him and have fellowship with him. Now, the great tragedy is that so many do not seek God, despite his nearness. Notice what Paul says in verse 27, though he be not far from every one of us. Paul is teaching us here that it's actually not that difficult to become a Christian. It's not that difficult to find God. You don't have to go and climb a mountain. You don't have to go to the other side of the world to find God. You don't have to engage in deep philosophical study for years and years. God has made us to feel after him and to find him. And he is not far from every one of us. And so the knowledge of God's truth is not to be strained after by some great philosophical or ascetic endeavour. You know, go and live in a desert for five years contemplating on your own and then you might find God. No, people do not have to do that. 
God is near and he's speaking to men. You know, God is speaking to every single non-Christian every single day through his creation, through his circumstances and through his conscience. And if that unbeliever is blessed by hearing the gospel as well, that, of course, is the supreme means by which God speaks. And then Paul says this in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Now, Paul was a pretty learned fellow. Uh, He quotes the Greek poet Aratus here. Now, Aratus, when he wrote his poem, was actually referring to the god Jupiter when he spoke of men being God's offspring. And Jupiter is, of course, a false god like all the rest. But even in the horrid confusion of the pagan mind, some philosophers still retained something of the primeval truth that men owe their existence to the single supreme god. And the Athenians must realise that they cannot breathe another breath unless the one true God decrees it. It is he who will terminate their lives according to his own purpose. Men are not their own masters. They are created by God for God's pleasure. And people today must accept this fact. They must accept that the God who manifests himself in the person of Jesus Christ is the creator of the world and the judge of the world. So hopefully we can see what Paul was fundamentally saying to the Athenians, the substance of his message. We can learn so much from it. There's so much more we could say, but we can all sum it up by this. Verse 18, Paul preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And in doing so, he also spoke of the Lord Jesus and his heavenly father being the creator as well. So this is how we should be preaching today. May we have the courage of Paul to go into the marketplace and to dispute with the unbelievers. May we have the courage to go forth and preach Jesus and the resurrection. Amen.